A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 16 Marxism Metastasizes Part 3 Social Justice Theory Infects Every Aspect of Life What is Social Justice? In critical theory, social injustice is structural. In other words, it is built into the institutions of society to unfairly award privilege and power to certain classes or groups. Social justice, then, means identifying these structural inequities, these illegitimate centers of power, as the root of injustice and then destroying them. More specifically, this concept of justice requires that people be sorted into victim classes and groups so that the oppressors can be identified and opposed. In the absence of an absolute standard, a relative morality of this nature quickly becomes subjective. In the social justice world, morality has come to mean caring for the plight of those who are identified as part of approved victim groups. This is in contrast to the approach taken by the American Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, which establish universal rights that should be available for all individuals and all groups. Not every grievance is justified by a human right and not every desire of every person can be justly fulfilled, especially if that fulfillment means loss of rights for others. The pursuit of happiness is a very broad expression of human rights, consistent with our original purpose. Thus the rule of law should protect our freedom and our right to pursue happiness within a fair system, but it cannot guarantee outcomes. Trying to make the law guarantee equity of outcomes can only create further injustices because no person, organization or government can ever determine true equality of outcomes, let alone guarantee it. This is what communism promises to do and fails to deliver, at huge cost to the people forced to participate in its Maccabre experiments. Central planning has sometimes been helpful, especially in times of crisis and war, but it is not a sustainable system of government over significant periods of time. And since postmodernism does not recognize universal absolutes, its social justice warriors only have subjective standards to go on, standards that are forever changing and can never be the basis for a durable system of justice. For example, are we to believe that the 2020 death of African-American George Floyd at the hands of the police in Minnesota justified months of rioting, looting, and attacking innocents, resulting in at least 15 deaths, over $2 billion in damage, and the destruction of hundreds of minority-owned businesses. The only reasonable conclusion is that the rioters were not interested in justice for anyone, least of all for the members of minority communities who were the main victims of their predations, and who suffered the greatest losses. 
the rioters were simply carrying out their revolutionary program for which Floyd's death, while in police custody, provided a convenient pretext. Following are some of the main critical theories that support the left's social justice agenda and are being taught in schools and universities and translated into government policy. New section. Intersectionality and identity politics. Looking at people as the victims of social forces has inevitably led to the concept that any given individual is the product of a number of such forces. This analysis of victimhood goes far beyond Marx's underprivileged class of proletarians and Mao's underprivileged peasants. It includes categories for race, ethnicity, religion, and gender. From the point of view of minorities or victims of injustice, this intersection of victimhood has become a study in its own right. According to this theory, a woman who is black has at least two strikes against her in a white, male-dominated society. If she is lesbian, she has a third. This can necessarily get complicated. How do you weigh the importance of one social deficit over another? How do you measure the cumulative effect of several deficits? How do you assess the just compensation for these deficits? And perhaps most critical, who is to pay this compensation? As with all critical theories, the real object of intersectionality is not to establish a logical or rational basis for determining objective social justice and appropriate remedies. It is instead a means for multiplying victimhood as a basis for seeking retribution and restitution for grievances. On its face, that is an impossible task, better left to God. Society should limit itself to punishing crimes, such as murder, rape and theft, that clearly violate laws that have been enacted by democratically elected legislators. The practical use of intersectionality is to divide people into victim groups and then build political power around agendas that purport to represent those groups' interests. This is called identity politics, and it is a critical tool in the Democratic Party of today. Its actual effect is not to ameliorate the challenges faced by minorities and other groups that actually suffer the consequences of being less fortunate than most, but to get people and politicians to think of society and constituencies in sexual, racial, and ethnic categories. In other words, its real effect is to awaken the very prejudices that it claims to be driving from the minds and hearts of the people and nation. Sadly, many minority religious and political leaders have embraced this false theory instead of standing up to it and promoting an authentic explanation for injustices. A new section, Postcolonial Theory. The postmodernist method first gained a following through its post-colonialism theories. It was not difficult to pin the injustices and suffering of the people of colonies or former colonies on the colonists who were primarily whites from Christian European countries. Few would disagree that colonialism was rife with prejudices born of the assumed superiority of white European over darker inhabitants of Africa, 
South America and Asia. Thus anti-colonialism is widely accepted on the basis that all people have a right to self-determination and equal treatment. Post-colonialism theory points to the failure of the colonial powers to recognize the injustices of their unjust policies and rectify these shortcomings by taking responsibility for the well-being and development of the former colonies. But the history of colonialism and post-colonialism is not that simple. For one, Marxism played a major role in the anti-colonial movements that rose after World War II. The Soviet Union and its allies and surrogates presented themselves as the great champions of the victims of colonialism, nurturing and encouraging nascent socialist and communist parties and revolutionary movements throughout the developing world. They offered themselves to newly independent countries as a desirable alternative to the colonial or former colonial powers with great success. Almost half of all African independence movements took the path of aligning with Moscow. Many established socialist dictatorships of one stripe or another as Marxism-Leninism, Pan-Africanism and tribalism worked out uneasy compromises. The postmodernist analysis of the racist component of colonialism tends to blur some of its features that, in the long run, change the dynamic between colonists and colonies in a positive way. One of these was the sincere desire of Christians to benefit the less fortunate of the world. Missionaries not only taught the Gospels, but also built and operated hospitals and schools, sometimes at the risk of their lives, and generally played a constructive role in the development of the colonies. In the post-colonial era, it was often the churches that shouldered the responsibility for continuing or increasing their aid to poor countries. Also, the colonial governments were not all equal. The worst simply enslaved the native people for use on their plantations and exploited mineral, timber and other resources for their own economies. Better colonial governments, however, built hospitals and schools, introduced transportation and communications infrastructure, provided modern technology and established efficient government administrations. Indeed, the worst post-colonial outcomes were those produced by violent revolutions and the institution of communist or socialist governments. Take for example countries like Benin, Guinea-Bissau, Angola and Equatorial Guinea, all of which turned to the communist bloc for assistance once they gained independence. Their attempts at building socialist states all ended in disaster. The best colonial transitions were produced by peaceful transfers of power followed by continued cooperation between former colonial powers and their former colonies. A good example of post-colonial amity in general is the British Commonwealth. To this day, former colonies are partners with Britain in an organization that promotes mutual development among all its members. Slavery was endemic in the earliest human societies and persisted over the millennia. Colonialism often encouraged slavery, especially as European nations sought labor for their colonial plantations. 
but it was eventually the Christian conscience of Europeans and later Americans that ended the practice in the West and ultimately worldwide. In 1807, Britain outlawed the slave trade and used its navy to enforce the law. In 1833, Britain abolished slavery altogether, a decision followed three decades later when President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. A new section, Critical Race Theory, Anti-Racism, and White Privilege, Fragility, and Supremacy. Perhaps the most damaging of all critical theories are those related to race. Racism has become a useful issue to divide society and is the favorite label the left attaches to its targets. After all, to be labeled a racist is to be smeared with the worst possible character. If you accept the critical theory assumption that racism is structural, a prejudice built into society and reinforced by a long history of white oppression, you naturally look for culprits to identify, isolate and attack. It is no surprise then that critical race theory goes so far as to castigate all whites simply for being white. If you are a white person, you must be a racist, and the onus is on you to prove that you are not. Ironically, this is the definition of racism, judging people by the color of their skin instead of by the content of their character, as Martin Luther King put it so well. The racist lens through which these anti-racism theories look at the world identifies white privilege as the scourge of the earth and the source of the world's worst problems, from colonialism and capitalism to the unjust wielding of political and economic power. The latest theory in this genre is white fragility, explained in a popular 2018 book of that title by Robin DiAngelo. As with its predecessors of this genre, a key assumption of this theory is that racism is systemic in America, at least among whites, who are unable to talk about it frankly because of their complicity in it. The left is quick to point to violence perpetrated by whites against non-whites as proof of systemic white racism and a belief in white supremacy. In other words, the racism that is so embedded in white people because they are white is bound to manifest in violence against non-whites. According to this theory, racial differences themselves, not acquired bigoted attitudes, are the cause of racist attitudes and behavior. The only logical conclusion to draw from this theory is that white racism is innate and cannot be eradicated. However, if this is the nature of white racism, why wouldn't members of other races be afflicted with similar inalienable racism? And isn't it the epitome of racism to associate specific negative characteristics with specific colors? In fact, anti-racist theories are patently false and dangerously racist ideas themselves because they conflate skin color with character. There are few white supremacists, but their influence in the wider American society is insignificant. Their racism is no worse than those of other purveyors of racist theories. All are harmful and should be rejected. Of course, 
Races do exhibit differences. This is part of the great and wonderful diversity of the human family in which there are not even two people who are fully identical. There's nothing wrong with a group affinity, whether based on skin color, religion, nationality or other factors. It is a natural characteristic of the creation that can serve to build a sense of identity, belonging and community. Racism is the corrosive inverse of positive group affinity. It exploits natural differences in the cause of conflict and destruction. In this, it fits perfectly into the dialectical and critical theory views of societal contradictions and divisions, lending itself to radical leftist prescriptions. And although Marx himself had little to say about racism, he was obsessed with class differences. Sadly, it has now become a primary weapon in the arsenal of the left, which uses the racist label to dehumanize and attack those it opposes. It is important to acknowledge that racism has caused great harm to many, especially as a justification for slavery. However, in the past two centuries, great strides have been taken to rectify the systemic structural aspects of slavery and the prejudices that justified it. In the American Civil War, hundreds of thousands of white men gave their lives to see that America put an end to slavery once and for all. Before buying into the all-too-easy anti-racist accusations of whites, it would be wise to remember the sacrifice of the young men who left home and family to risk their lives at Antietam, Gettysburg, Vicksburg, and Cold Harbor so that America could remain one nation under God, free from slavery. Their sacrifices deserve to be honored, not ignored, and buried in the bloody fields of battle, wretched prisons, and ill-equipped hospitals where they gave their all. Today, anti-racism theory, including critical race theory, white privilege, and white fragility, has itself become a racist doctrine that is being spread far and wide by academia, media, and government. It is an insidious and destructive theory that provides an ideological construct that justifies attacking whites for being white and advocates for radical measures by institutions and governments to address what it sees as systemic racism. Meanwhile, diversity directors at companies and organizations encourage policies designed to punish whites for being white and to elevate minorities of color to achieve equity. They have left behind the ideal of equality of opportunity and embraced equity of outcomes. This does not solve racism. It merely reverses the categories of racists and its victims. As we've pointed out, racism cannot solve the problem of racism. What racism remains in the hearts and minds of Americans and people everywhere, whatever their color, is the consequence of the unfinished journey toward the destiny that belongs to all humanity. But the able solution to human inadequacy and imperfection is not to kill or oppress, but to educate, enlighten and uplift. Racial, ethnic, religious and other differences will always be part of the mosaic of humanity. The conflicts that exploit these differences will only be eliminated when society is composed 
of mature individuals who fully embrace the beauty and goodness of creation's diversity. A new section. Wokeness, political correctness, and cancel culture. The left believes it is uniquely aware of the injustices of this world. Using critical theory, it believes it has discovered a wide range of social inequities which it claims to be addressing. Accordingly, people on the left think they alone are awake to the problems of capitalism, racism, sexism, etc. Their wokeness enables them to see clearly both the problems and the solutions, insights they insist you agree with. In their state of wokeness, only they have the proper language to define problems and rectify them. Thus they ride the waves of critical theory through academia, media and government, dictating correct interpretations and suitable terminology for the revolutionary categories they have established. Their thought police in social media and mass media jump on any use of language that violates their politically correct lexicon and any comments, articles, programs or books that stray from their intellectual compound are attacked as dangerous and in need of cancellation. They go further, heckling speakers they disagree with, attacking enemies on social media and harassing them in public places and at their homes. The irony of their fascistic attitudes and actions seems to be lost on them since they claim to be anti-fascists. As with all Marxists before them, their rigid conformity to leftist ideology casts an ever-expanding and ever-darkening cloud over the world of ideas, including genuine scientific theories. Their attacks on those with whom they disagree cause perfectly innocent people to be fired, deplatformed, or worse. In 2020, the cancel culture warriors reached a peak of aggressive behavior when social and news media censored unwanted articles about Joe Biden's son, ignored or suppressed unwelcome information about voter fraud, castigated anyone who suggested that the COVID-19 virus originated in a Wuhan lab, and vilified authors and pundits for providing any information or opinions counter to the left's narrative. The left need only look to China to see itself in the mirror. In 2020, the Chinese Communist Party tightened surveillance of its people and continued the ruthless genocide of its Uyghur minority. At the same time, it continued its brutal persecution of the Falun Gong and other religious groups. It suppressed free speech and democracy in Hong Kong, and it ratcheted up its pressure on Taiwan by blocking its access to COVID-19 vaccines while increasing its military intimidation of the island state. Oh yes, and it has denied any responsibility for the COVID-19 virus that spread around the world, killing millions, instead claiming the virus originated in the United States. The woke agenda of political correctness and cancel culture is designed to achieve results similar to what we see in China. The Democratic Party has embraced most of the left's ideas and is seeking to translate them into government policy. If this continues and the influence of the left in government is unchecked, 
Who's to say that it will be any different from the government of communist China? A new section. Languages violence, hate speech and hate crimes. One of the most pernicious theories of the left, which fuels cancel culture, is that language itself can be violence, as demonstrated in their efforts to impose politically correct terminology and to prevent anyone they disagree with from speaking. This unhealthy view of language is derived from postmodernist concepts about the role of language in shaping society, including that some structures need deconstructing to remove inequities and injustices. A handy label for unwanted speech is hate speech. As with racism, if you attach this label to what someone says, you condemn them as a bad person and justify censoring them or seeking their prosecution for hate crimes. The notion that language can be violence and therefore must be censored is inimical to traditional liberalism, which welcomes the free flow of ideas as essential to learning and science. Because the importance of freedom of speech is almost universally recognized and accepted, it is protected in most constitutions, even those of regimes that in fact suppress free speech. Thus for the left and for totalitarian regimes, the way to get around constitutional guarantees of free speech is to criminalize unwanted speech by classifying it as speech that is outside the protections of the law. For the leftist movements, this unprotected speech is likely labeled hate speech or insurrectionist speech. In totalitarian regimes, unprotected speech is labeled reactionary, subversive, anti-revolutionary, or treasonous speech. These are all punishable by the regimes. Somewhat strangely in America, and many other countries as well, the censorship of language on behalf of the left these days is often initiated by private sector companies that apparently see themselves as morally superior and wiser than the general public. Thus major news companies, Associated Press, Reuters, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post and others, and social media companies, Facebook, Twitter and Google in particular, who enjoy an almost monopolistic control of news and information flows are now voluntarily doing what used to be the exclusive work of government censors in authoritarian and totalitarian states. These big companies don't yet have the means or authority to round up and punish the perpetrators of unwanted speech, as censors do in totalitarian states, but with their extensive data on individuals and organizations, and through their close relations with the Democratic Party and many in government, that limitation may soon be gone. A new section. The fusion of Marxism and critical theories. Some of the most active groups who claim to be fighting racism, sexism, homophobia, fascism, capitalism, and other forms of structural injustice believe that violence on behalf of their cause is justified. For a Marxist, this is natural. Violence is a core part of the prescription for revolutionary change. And as with many Marxist movements of the past, 
the names these modern activist groups choose, both for their organizations and for their agendas, are typically laudatory and above reproach, thus disguising their true purposes. Black Lives Matter, which fuses traditional Marxism with postmodernist critical theories, is such an organization. Using a name that no one can disagree with, it has managed to win the support of many Americans, as well as the bulk of mass media and social media, many major corporations, and droves of educators and government officials, even though its leaders are self-declared Marxists. Young people in particular are attracted by BLM, seeing the organization as championing ideals that they identify with. However, in 2020, BLM was behind many attacks on police and innocent individuals, as well as the burning and looting of small businesses, all carried out in the name of outrage over the death of a black man, George Floyd, as discussed above. The left has always been violent, believing that change cannot be achieved without it. In the 1960s, the leftist group Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, was active in organizing demonstrations and protests. When these did not deliver hoped-for results, a radical offshoot, the Weather Underground, began a campaign of violence, setting off bombs at strategic locations. Several people were killed. One of the chief activists of SCS and the Weather Underground was Eric Mann, who spent time in prison for his violent behavior. He would transition to the Radical Labor Community Strategy Center. A protege of his in that organization was Patrice Collars, one of the three co-founders of BLM. In 2015, Collars told the Real News Network, and I quote, The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers, end quote. She continued, We are trained Marxists. We are superversed on, sort of, ideological theories, end quote. Alicia Gaza is the second co-founder of BLM. Given BLM's tactics and behavior, should we be surprised by this revelation? Both Colors and Gaza are not only self-identified Marxists, but also self-identified queers, and BLM's 13 principles include a number of critical theory ideas that would never have been included in the Communist Manifesto, reflecting the influence of critical theories on the left today. Here are two of the 13 principles, and I quote, Queer Affirming We are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she or he or they disclose otherwise. A second BLM principle, trans-affirming. We are committed to embracing and making space for trans brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are committed to being self-reflexive and doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence." End quote. 
BLM has received tens of millions of dollars in donations from supporters and corporations trying to signal their virtue or simply to protect themselves from attack as racists. With this money, BLM has drawn up curricula for schools grades 1 through 12 based on its Radical 13 principles. Graduates of this type of leftist education, plus critical theory education in universities, are filled with disdain for their society and country, believing, for example, that America is systemically racist, sexist, and imperialist. They want to tear down the existing order in the belief that a better one will emerge if they are in charge. Violence is their natural recourse. In what appeared to be a demonstration of hypocrisy, Colors was in 2021 found to have purchased four residences worth a total of $3.2 million. In fact, this type of behavior by leaders on the left is typical, as evidenced by the lives of relative luxury enjoyed by the Soviet nomenclatura. Antifa is a frequent partner with BLM in street violence. This organization takes its name from the original German nickname for Antifascistische Aktion, Antifascist Action, an organization set up by the German Communist Party, the KPD, in 1932. Its original purpose was to engage in the street warfare between the Nazi Party and the KPD, which intensified at the time of the 1932 national elections that would lead to Hitler ascending to power in 1933. The Nazi brown shirts were known for their violent intimidation tactics, and the KPD, which spurned the ruling Social Democratic Party, or SPD, as what they called social fascists, created Antifa to fight the Nazis using similar violent tactics. The current incarnation of Antifa has all the unpleasant and dangerous hallmarks of the original. It is anarchistic and employs violence to intimidate and harm those it identifies as its enemies. For months during 2020, we witnessed Antifa in cities like Portland, Seattle and Washington DC, burn buildings, attack police and their vehicles, and loot and burn private businesses of all types. Their violence was responsible for a number of deaths, including a man who was shot by one of their activists. Anyone their mobs considered an enemy was liable to be beaten, sometimes severely. The same was true of journalists deemed unfriendly to their cause. Andy No, a journalist who has covered many Antifa demonstrations and riots and written a book exposing their tactics, was severely beaten, suffering brain injuries. No police came to his rescue. He would later tell the New York Post, and I quote, I was chased, attacked, and beaten by a masked mob, baying for my blood. Had I not been able to shelter wounded and bleeding inside a hotel while they beat the doors and windows like animals, there's no doubt in my mind I would not be here today. It seemed obvious they intended to make good on hundreds of threats over the past two years to kill me." End quote. According to a 2017 article in the New York Times, Antifa is, and I quote, the diverse collection of anarchists, communists, and socialists, end quote. Ironically, although anarchists are supposed to be against state power, 
This group, like most other ostensibly anarchist organizations, is actually led by the leading advocates for authoritarian big government, socialists and communists. Ironically too, ironically too, this supposedly anti-fascist movement exhibits all the hallmarks of fascist and communist movements and regimes. They use force to intimidate anyone they disapprove of from being able to speak in public or distribute their publications. They also employ a nasty, fascistic practice of doxing anyone they target for intimidation, publishing private addresses and contact information, and sometimes organizing demonstrations at those private locations. Their behavior is the epitome of the ruthless authoritarianism they claim to be fighting. Hiding behind masks and helmets, they take to the streets armed with clubs, knives, bricks and crowbars, and sometimes high-tech weapons like lasers, using these weapons to blind police. They show no regard for the civil rights of people they attack, whether their victims are police protecting the public, seniors eating in a restaurant, small business owners, or ordinary people going about their daily lives. They are eerily like the original Antifa and Hitler's brown shirts. A conservative activist who was curious to know more about Antifa after some of her friends had been attacked by the group, dressed up in a black outfit and joined a demonstration to see how they operated. She found that they were disciplined in their black block tactics, provoking their arch enemies, the police, with brazen attacks, pushing them to the point where they had to respond. I quote, That's why all the press is there, the sympathetic press. Antifa is trying to create propaganda. They know how the police are going to react, so they carefully calibrate what they do to try to provoke the police into reacting and then filming it. They want to try to push public opinion in favor of removing the police. End quote. As with BLM, Antifa demonstrates a fusion of Marxist and postmodernist influences. The revolutionary ideology is Marxism, but some of their main objectives are right out of critical theories. Prominent among these is their interest in transgenderism. At a recent presentation at Hillsdale College, Andy Noe shared some of the police reports on Antifa rioters in Portland, Oregon, where Antifa spearheaded over 100 days of riots in 2020. He found evidence of an outsized role of transgender people in the organization, much as the leadership of BLM self-identifies as queer. A new section, false divisions and true diversity. All of the above neo-Marxism theories and movements are based on identifying parties the left holds responsible for divisions in society and then isolating and attacking them. This cynical endeavor is, ironically, frequently carried out in the name of promoting diversity. There's no subtle paradox at play here. The left's attack on diversity in the name of diversity is simply a symptom of what is fundamentally wrong with Marxism and critical theories. First, the beauty of creation lies in its diversity and the harmony that characterizes its order. Shades of blue make oceans beautiful. Shades of green make forests fascinating. Nature exhibits a kaleidoscope of colors 
and an endless variety of shapes, sizes, and behaviors, all integrated into a single harmonious whole. As the pinnacle of creation, human beings are the most diverse species of all. Each person possesses unique features, characteristics, and capabilities. Within this diversity, the more important differences are internal, those of character rather than gender, race, or ethnicity. And if we are indeed the product of divine creation, the most important human nature is the image of the divine imprinted on the original hearts and minds of all people, endowing them with absolute value. It is important to distinguish this true diversity from differences between good and evil. As noted in the introduction, good and evil are fundamentally incompatible and cannot coexist. Good exists as an attribute of the Creator, who is only good, whereas evil is simply the perversion of good. Thus evil is antithetical to good and must be thwarted and defeated. Marxism and its offshoots mistakenly conflate natural diversity with diverse manifestations of good and evil, and thus look at people as members of groups, good or bad, rather than as individuals. To wit, Marxists and critical theorists see people as members of classes, races, sexes, sex, and ethnicities. These groups are assumed to be in conflict with one another, as per dialectic or critical theories, and these conflicts can only be resolved through violent resistance and rebellion by the aggrieved groups. New Section the left's grievance industry. Thus diversity has become an industry of the left that deals with visible differences of class, race or gender as if these categories were legitimate bases for separating good from evil, as in all whites are automatically racist. This erroneous concept of good and evil is often used by the left to punish true diversity based on natural God-given differences. Wealthy individuals and corporations pour money into organizations that advocate for diversity on leftist terms, including LGBTQ rights, racial minority rights, gender rights, and similar causes. Thus, a leftist industry is created that provides jobs for radicals. And because this industry depends on the existence of grievances, it is in its interest to keep these grievances coming. Thus real or manufactured social problems are inflated into major national issues which justify new demands for money, and so the cycle continues. Many politicians of the left seek constituencies in terms of race or class and shape their campaigns accordingly. In this world of identity politics, the politically ambitious exploit group grievances and differences to gain support and get elected. Once in office, they work to retain the support of constituencies by promoting or supporting legislation that promises to address the group's grievances. Rarely do these prescriptions bring positive change, and often they make situations worse. But repeating the promises works, which is why this practice is continued by the unscrupulous. For their part, corporations are fearful of being labeled racist or the like, or are facing discrimination lawsuits from the left. They hire diversity executives who are responsible for seeing that all aggrieved groups 
are treated equally or that they are assured equity of outcomes in positions and pay. They also see to it that the corporate social responsibility programs and corporate donations satisfy leftist social justice criteria, keeping critics at bay. This perversion of fair policies logically leads to people being given jobs and compensation based on their color, sex, or other group identity, rather than their capabilities. It is discrimination that inevitably penalizes those who meet real criteria for employment by working hard to gain educational qualifications and work experience. Increasingly, government and private institutions and corporations boast about their diversity programs, proudly announcing how many minority groups are represented in their management and workforce. Apparently blind to the irony, this approach takes them full circle to the bad old days of discrimination when people were looked at based on their group identity rather than being treated as individuals deserving of respect based on their qualifications and merits. Diversity programs reverse decades of law and policy that require government and private organizations and businesses to hire based on merit, not on color, gender, ethnicity, or the like. The fruits of the civil rights movement, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the many other advances in legislation and other guarantees of equality in the eyes of the law should not be abandoned so easily. The world is a better place if people are treated on the basis of their character and not the externalities of race, sex, ethnicity or religion. As we have shown in this chapter, the prescriptions of critical theories lead to conflict and violence. They exploit the goodwill of good people and offer nothing of value in return. Marxism and Neo-Marxism are theories barren of life, liberty and happiness. They offer no food for the spirit and soul. It's high time they were exposed and replaced with positive and productive alternatives. End of the chapter.